On a warm and sunny October afternoon in 1982, 60,000 football fans came to root for their home team in Wisconsin in Badger Stadium, in Madison at the University of Wisconsin, and they were, they were there to support the team as the team tried to stand up against the Michigan State Spartans. And it was a feeble effort. It was immediately clear that the Spartans had the better team, the better playbook, the better coaching. It's just a better, better organization all around. And as this, the, the score got more and more lopsided, an odd thing happened. The 60,000 fans did not sort of descend into the, the, the sort of melancholy or the surrender of, well, I guess we lost this one. In fact, they seemed to get more pepped up. And, and an odd, odder yet thing happened that occasionally, seemingly randomly throughout the game, people here and there would cheer and applaud. There'd perhaps be a tackle and their own team would lose possession of the ball and they'd, yeah, all right! And what was going on is not that people in Wisconsin are completely weird, but that not far from there, perhaps 45 minutes drive away, Game 3 of the World Series was going on. And it was the Milwaukee Brewers against the Cardinals. And the Brewers were winning. And so you had many people bringing, it's 1982, like transistor radios with them, with those big earpieces. And throughout the stadium, people would hear when the Brewers would, would get a, a home run, and they would announce, hey, we got another point, and people would cheer, and yeah, they knew we lost this one, but that is not as important as the big game, the World Series. In fact, we kind of wish we were there, able to, but we'll cheer here, because even though we can't see that game, we know it's more important. This makes me think of the passage today that Christy just read for us, particularly verse 18, 2 Corinthians 4, 18, that we are to not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. That, that we often look at the hardships and the defeats today in this moment, but there is a bigger game going on, Christ's larger victory. There is a meta-narrative that is the story of the Bible, and we're part of that story, and we know the ending And we know that Christ is victorious. Now, throughout this book, we've seen Paul defending his apostleship. And he's been offending against these uh, super apostles, he will call them, because they continually have said, in Paul's absence, to the Corinthians, this guy's a loser. You're following a loser. He's continually being, like, kidnapped and captured and beaten and shipwrecked. Is that what you want? And Paul says, they, they say that I'm not the real deal because of all these trials and afflictions I've faced. But I suggest that those are proof that I am the real deal. That I am the apostle. That I am a follower of Christ. After all, Christ took up a cross and said, if you will follow me, take up your cross. Hey, super apostles, where's your cross? And there is a great argument in that. And it is compelling, but at the same time, it raises the question, if this is what the Christian life is like, why would anyone sign up for it? If it's just continual affliction and suffering and toiling and, and you're being treated unfairly, why, why would anyone want to be part of that? And here is where Paul begins to explain why he is full of joy and hope despite all of these different sufferings that he will continue to highlight throughout this letter of 2 Corinthians. 
Verse 16 begins with, So we do not lose heart. Notice that last week, we read a passage right before this, and it began with the words, Therefore, having this ministry, we do not lose heart. Paul wants to emphasize for his readers, yes, there's a lot that's going on that that will drag us down. There is a lot that we have faced and endured and will endure, but we will not lose heart. Why? Because we are currently living in a tension, as are all believers. There is a tension inside of us and outside of us. The, The tension of being, as we read here in verse 16, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. What kind of tension is that? Wasting away and simultaneously being renewed. Decaying and being made new. Having been granted salvation, but still struggling with sin, putting sin to death in the body. There's an old Latin phrase, simul justus et precator, which means simultaneously justified and sinner. And that, that can be a frustrating tension in our lives. It can cause us to face different trials and different defeats, and yet we do not lose heart. Remember that when you feel at your weakest, that is an opportunity for God to shine brightest in your life. In fact, spiritual poverty and acknowledging our weakness is required for following Christ. And when we acknowledge our weakness and feel our weakness, the resurrection power of Christ is there to strengthen us day by day. And so Paul, to illustrate, he says, let me kind of compare these two things. These two things that are at tension inside of us. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, there's a little play on words in there. And even though this is written in Greek, it's a Hebrew play on words. And I know I just lost everybody, but stick with me a minute. In the Hebrew, the word for glory or honor or majesty is the word kavod. And it comes from a verb, kavad, which means to be heavy or to be weighty. In fact, that was the ultimate goal of people in the ancient Near East, to have glory. You know, you might want to give someone a compliment in the church, just say to them, you know, you, you look heavy. And by that I mean weighty. You know what I mean. Now, the glory, it's, it's got weight to it. In fact, you could, you could translate that word just weightiness. And so there is this sense of ever, uh, everlasting weight and, and great uh, mass pulling down, showing that there's this glory, this power, this majesty that we will attain. And compared to that, Our trials are light and momentary. There's a contrast between the weight of glory and the lightness of affliction. But wait a minute, you might remember back from chapter 1, and if you don't, let me remind you, that Paul was sort of complaining a little bit, or at least using his trials as a way of kind of bragging. He said, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. And and you say, wait, there's a disconnect here. In chapter 1, his afflictions, his trials, they were a burden. That word means literally to weigh down. They were weighing him down to the point where he couldn't carry them, and he's like, I don't even want to live anymore. Now, three chapters later, his afflictions are light and momentary. What happened? 
what happened was he put them on the scale. Remember when Dave built that scale and we had the boys and the girls putting pennies and quarters and things in it and you put one one side and the other side and the heavier one will take precedence and pull down and the other one will sadly limply go up in the air well what he did he had these massive afflictions they were weighing him down and then he put them on one side of the scale and on the other side of the scale he put the glory the everlasting glory that was his in christ and it was not even close it was like ping this is what happened in view of the glory of eternity, he finds, as we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal, it's no contest whatsoever. Compared to the weightiness of God's glory, my trials are light and momentary. He had an eternal perspective. That's what he needed. That's what we need. To look through things through the lens, not of this moment and what I'm enduring now, and how I feel like God has just left me to deal with all this by myself, but rather to look at things through the lens of eternity, at what God is doing in the bigger picture. Not to look at the the game here on the, the college football field, but to think about the big game that's happening as we speak. And when we have that eternal perspective, unimportant things become all-important, and vice versa. We recognize the things we would obsess about. They're not that important. And it's worth enduring things in this moment for a greater glory that will be eternal. It's not unlike how we all should exercise. Sometimes I do. But I'll tell you what, only when I can give myself that long view, when I go, huh, Running on the treadmill sounds boring, painful, but if I do it in the long term, I'll have better health. Ideally, my pants will fit a little better. Life will be better. Things will be better. The long view gives us, or maybe a better illustration would be just to turn to Jesus and let him do it. In John 16, 21, he said, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. I remember when Aaron was in labor with our son. She was like, oh, this hurts. And I said, honey, it's just light and momentary trials. <laughs> you know, that's not true because I'm still alive. No, but I did call my mother and said, I don't know what to do. I'm so scared. She's in so much pain. It's so terrible. How does anyone endure this? Why do people have babies And my mom said, yeah, I've been through it twice, and I don't really barely remember it because of how happy I was with you and your sister. And and frankly, you've been more of a pain since then. So I just (laughs) scrubbed it out of my mind. But but the idea that there is something happening painful now, and our our culture is losing this. The idea of delayed gratification or, or working and suffering now in order to accomplish something bigger. We have our eyes set right two inches in front of our face on our smartphones. Well, what does he want us, Paul want us, and his Holy Scripture, and therefore the Holy Spirit want us to set our eyes upon? He says, fix your eyes. Not just look at, but fix your eyes on things that are eternal. Fix your eyes. Set your aim, set your sights at things not that are seen, but that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They come and go, but the things that are unseen 
are eternal. The quickest way to lose heart is to focus on this moment. To focus on how it could be better. To focus on what I've missed out on or what I, what I have to do that maybe I could have avoided. We, we, we see the worldly things that tempt us and the, the trials and the worries that, that drag us down and we lose heart. But if we can zoom out, and sometimes it's difficult. I think Paul kind of acknowledges that here when he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We try and walk through, you know, you ever try to walk by faith through your living room? The lights are off, you forgot something downstairs, you go down. I used to do this all the time. Now it's like, Lego, 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 and it's horrible. But if you know that you can trust where you're going and walk by faith, you know, it's, it's very difficult sometimes to know. You know, when, when the, the airplane was first developed, there was this assumption that just like in a car, you'd be able to sort of feel when you made a turn. So if you flew into some fog or, or you were unable to see what was going on, you'd, you'd, you'd know whether you were going, you know, turned or whether you were level. And of course you can't. You ever notice if you're in a plane and you're drinking coffee and you look out the window and you're banking, the coffee stays somehow flat in your cup? Well, that, that sort of thing is why they developed the artificial horizon. It's an instrument that shows you, you know, you feel maybe like, like, like you're straight, but you're not, and it shows you, and you can correct. The Holy Spirit does that for us. We walk by faith, not by sight. And that does not mean a leap in the dark, as many people have made it to mean. You know, don't, don't trust anything that you see. Don't trust evidence. Don't, don't trust the... the Textbooks? No, that's not what it's teaching. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, we saw him laying out much evidence. And here he says that we know, in verse 1, that we can know about the unseen world, not just have blind faith. But to walk by faith and not by sight means that we are focused on the bigger picture. And so, to kind of show an example of what he means, in chapter 5, he starts talking about our bodies and what will one day happen to them, which is, Spoil alert, you will die, and I will die, unless the Lord returns. It's not comfortable for us to talk about, but Paul seems to have no problem whatsoever. He says in, in chapter 5, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The idea of our bodies being kind of a tent is something that uh, we saw Peter use in 2 Peter. Same metaphor. Isaiah uses it in the Old Testament. But for Paul, it's particularly poignant because he's writing to the Corinthians. And when he lived in Corinth, he was making tents for income. And so he's got a connection with them. They can think about the very tents that, that he probably was trying to sell them all the time. He probably had a mar multi-level marketing thing going on. We don't, we don't, that's, that's not in the scriptures. But the, the idea that I'm the tent guy. Now hold on. Think about this. You are in a tent, a tent that is transient. It's your earthly home. And, and he goes on to explain that in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. In this tent we groan. Anybody here groan in your tent? The older you get, the more you groan. Even at not quite 40, I find that I, I, if I'm sitting somewhere, like at a table for two or three hours, when I stand, I'm like, what is happening? Ah! But this is beyond that. Of course, this is pointing at the weakness and the frailty and the mortality of our bodies. 
But beyond that, this groan is a groan of something deeper, of longing, of desire. Groaning for something because tents are temporary. Even for nomadic people like the Israelites. Nomadic Bedouins, and and they they eventually, after wandering in the wilderness, they were brought to the promised land. And they were able to cast their tents aside and have homes for themselves, something more permanent. And notice that Paul is not groaning here for heaven, for the general kind of afterlife that people talk about. Rather, he is talking about another permanent dwelling, which is the resurrection of the body. The Greek world surrounding the writing of this epistle was filled with the idea that the body was a prison or even a tomb for the soul. And so therefore death was a great escape from prison. To lose your body would mean that now you're free. But that's not what's taught here. From from the tent, we don't find, he says, all right, I'm going to get rid of the tent and then I'll be all set. No, there is a more permanent dwelling. The, The tent is not a prison, but a home. In fact, he calls it our earthly home. It's our home while we sojourn here. It's not bad. Your body's good, even if the aches and pains are making you groan. And so we think even of the tent, the tabernacle in the wilderness. As they were wandering, there was a tent in which they worshipped. And they would set it up, and they would put in it the altar and the table of showbread. They would bring into it the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and, and they would have worship there. But eventually, it wore out. And so they built a more permanent structure. We call it the temple. When they came into the Promised Land, the temple was built. Uh, David began it. Solomon uh, finished it. And, and even though it was different, and in many ways better, there was continuity between the old and the new. The same Ark of the Covenant was brought in. The same temple vessels. The same cloud of God's glory, the glory of His presence, was there. The same blood of atonement was brought in. The same ministry took place. And in the same way, there is great continuity between this earthly tent and the eternal and permanent home we long for. There is not discontinuity. In fact, I had a professor in seminary who would tell us the body you have now is the only body you'll ever have. And he was saying it somewhat to be controversial and make us think, but there is some truth to that. This body redeemed, just like this world recreated, is where we will spend eternity, not in heaven. There's continuity, and it's laid out very clearly in verses 3 and 4, two of the most overlooked verses in all of Scripture. We're longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Because this idea, this philosophy of the Greeks, the, the contempt for the body has crept into the church, we need to find these two verses anew. There is utterly no justification for that in Scripture. This talking about the body as if it was a prison holding us back. That's not biblical. That's Greek philosophy. It's entirely foreign to the body. You see, while the Greeks were, were looking at the, the body as a prison or a tomb, The Jews, of which Paul was one, thought of the body as the clothing 
And that sounds optional in some sense, but to be unclothed was unthinkable. Bad things happen in the Old Testament. Remember Ham and Noah? There's a great curse on a whole line of people. To be clothed was necessary. And so what, what Paul is talking about here is the resurrection. The, they believed in the resurrection in the Old Testament. We believe in the resurrection now. And you know what was the goal all along? They did not want to die and be raised again. They wanted to be like Elijah, who was translated and clothed further and went to be with God. Yes, it's true that when someone dies, their body goes into the ground or is cremated and their spirit returns to God who gave it. Yes, that's true, but that's not the Christian hope. Yes, it's true that here in verses 6 and 8, Paul says we are always of good courage. We know that we are, well, we are at home in the body. We're away from the Lord. We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, but that's not the Christian hope. He says, I'd rather have this, but ultimately there's something much more in store for me and for all of us. Plato, this Greek philosopher, said, if you're free from the body, you can be a spirit as it was intended. You'll be unclothed. And unclothed means free. You know what that sounds like? A weirdo. A nudist. To be unclothed is free. In fact, in his commentary on this passage, Tertullian wrote, you guys, don't be a spiritual nudist. That's weird. No, he didn't. But that's the main idea. You see, if you had a friend who talked like this, you would quickly distance yourself from him. If you were like, this is a good game, right? And he was like, yeah, but I wish I was watching it naked. <laughs> You'd be like, I don't think we should hang out anymore because you have really bad theology. And this is bad theology. The idea that we want to be unclothed, I want to lose my body and be a disembodied spirit floating around, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp somehow, even though I don't have fingers. This is a Greek desire, not a biblical desire. Think about it. We've got hiking where you have a tent, right? I used to do this. My wife does it all the time now. I'm, I'm slowly losing my desire to, to do it again. But you walk around for days and days, and every day you set up your tent, and you sleep in the tent, and you pretty much wear the same clothes the whole time. And after a few days of that, you think, I am done with this tent. I, wanna, I just want to get rid of the tent. But you don't want to throw the tent away and go sleep in a ditch. No, you want to go back home and sleep in your actual permanent home, in your real bed. You want to get those gross clothes off, but not to walk around. I mean, what you do in your own home is your own thing, but eventually what you want to do is shower, put on fresh clothes, and go about your life. And spiritually, that is what we long for. If we are going to be without the tent, we long for the eternal home. Genesis 3, nakedness brought shame. And God remedied it with clothing. And there's pictures throughout the Old Testament of people in filthy clothes. Spiritual pictures. The most prominent one being the high priest, Joshua, in Zechariah 3. And, and Satan says, look at the filthy clothes on this guy. And Christ doesn't say, okay, take his clothes off. He says, no, change his clothes. Do something clean and pure. Fresh linen. Put a clean linen turban on his head. We would want to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and we want to be clothed with our eternal bodies. Now, the only reason Paul says here that he wants to go to heaven is because Jesus is there. Paul longed to dwell with Jesus as a whole person, body and spirit, in the place he was meant to live, earth, 
which when you read the book of Revelation is where we spend eternity with Christ. So why then does he say we would rather be absent from the body and present in the Lord? Well, again, this is that paradox, that tension. He kind of teases it out more in Philippians 1. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. So he says, if I have to choose, it's preferable to go and be with Christ apart from my body, but that's not the ultimate goal. And yet, there is this inordinate emphasis in Christian churches on heaven. We're we're kind of obsessed with it lately. In fact, that's the intermediary state that's so unimportant that in chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul skips right over it. He goes right from being clothed in the tent to being clothed with our resurrection bodies at the return of Christ. It's not even important enough to mention. Christian funerals are so often not very Christian. Focusing and focusing on heaven as if it were our ultimate goal to leave this place. Listen, you're an earthling, for heaven's sake. You were made to live with a body so you can smell what it's like when a campfire is burning and feel the breeze on your face. And, and stand on a mountain and look at all that God has created, and you will be able to do these things forever. I'll never understand the obsession with these kind of heaven tourism books. The problem with them, I went to heaven for such and such amount of time, is not only that most of them are greatly at odds with what the Scripture says about heaven, but that they're focusing on the wrong thing. This is not our hope. Let me illustrate. We just went to Disney World. Uh, brought Calvin there because it was his reward for getting his black belt. Do not mess with him. And it, when we got to the airport, we had decided the cheapest way to get to the hotel was an Uber car. So we opened the Uber thing, and guess what? They only allow the elite, the Uber select or whatever, to come and pick you up at the airport. So it's real expensive, but it's a real nice car. Thus begins the sucking away of all of your money. And And we got into this car. We spent about 25, 30 minutes in this awesome black Cadillac with leather seats, smelled like new car inside. It was was a wonderful experience. But can you imagine if before we went to get Calvin excited about the trip, we had said, listen, it's going to be a Cadillac. We're going to be in a Cadillac, man. And and it's going to have leather seats. And it's going to have this much horsepower. And, it's gonna, and, and then afterward, when people asked about the trip, we got out our phones and said, want to see some pictures? Look at this Cadillac! And never mentioned Walt Disney World or Magic Kingdom or Legoland or any of this other stuff. That's the intermediate. To get from point A to point B. And ultimately, that's what going to heaven apart from our body is. Waiting for the resurrection, which is the Christian hope. And ultimately, he says, we know we will be clothed with immortality. In 1 Corinthians 15, he wrote, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. We live under the constant fear and the constant worry that we will be swallowed up in death today. But Scripture tells us that death is swallowed up in life. That is Christianity in a nutshell. That is our blessed hope. 
But of course, in the meantime, God has not left us wandering alone, even when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, living in tents. They had God's presence with them, a pillar of cloud during the day and a fire at night. And we see that he, he highlights this for us. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit is for us a down payment or a deposit. Just as Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of all the resurrection of the dead. And it's unlike, you know, if someone, if you're running a business, someone comes and gives you a deposit, here's $10,000, you don't go out and spend that money. A deposit has to be returned, not this deposit. We can spend it, and we will never run out. The Holy Spirit in us is a wonderful, wonderful blessing. And yet it's just a foretaste. Romans 8 tells us it's the Holy Spirit that makes us groan inwardly as we await the redemption of our bodies. It's the Holy Spirit that's making us groan, making us say, this isn't quite right. The suffering, the sin, the injustice, all the stuff around us is not quite right. We're not quite at home, even though we were created for this place. The purpose that God made for us, we see here, is not to die, but to be clothed with immortality. And this foretaste, as good as it is, is just that, a foretaste. Now we see him as through a glass darkly, then we will see him face to face. And you know, even in our worship, even in the songs we sing, we often miss this. As if the goal is for us simply to leave our bodies and go up into the sky and float around. As if we are adherents of ancient Greek philosophy and not a faith rooted in a man who died and rose again. God becoming man. We sing things like, like a bird from prison bars has flown, I'll fly away. What do we mean by that? That's the question. What do you mean by it? What do we mean when we sing that? Do we mean, oh, the prison bars, the prison is the curse of sin, the suffering, the, the waiting and groaning for eternity? If that's the case, fine. But if the prison bars are my body, well, then I'm singing something that's not only unchristian, it's perhaps anti-Christian. Missing the centrality of the incarnation, that Christ suffered in the body, died bodily, rose again bodily, will return bodily. Therefore, it matters what we do in the body. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. It does matter what we do. Paul lives his life in light of this hope, knowing that what he does matters. Even when outwardly it looks to the super apostles and many in Corinth like it's small and sad and insignificant, it brings joy to the heart of God. His life pleases God. You can please God with your life. You will never be perfect. You will never do everything you should and avoid everything you shouldn't. But you can please God with your life. Read the Sermon on the Mount if you don't believe me. And he concludes with verse 10, tying it all together. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Yes, the body matters. The body will be resurrected. We don't want to be unclothed, spending eternity in ethereal space. We want to have our eternal dwelling, and what we do in this dwelling has continuity with that dwelling. It's the same me. 
And when you read this, the judgment seat to be given, wait a minute, for good or for bad, is this going against the idea of salvation by grace through faith? It almost sounds like it's works salvation, if we don't understand exactly what Paul's doing here. What he's telling us, we know because Scripture does not contradict itself and from the broader context, is that the actions in the bodies have eternal consequences. So what you do now will have consequences for eternity. Not that your actions are the ground of salvation, but that they're a demonstration of your faith by which you've been saved. Salvation by grace through faith, it frees us from the crushing weight of the law, but not from the requirement for faithful obedience. We're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. This is what James tells us. It will be accompanied by works and obedience. And notice it does not say that we Christians will be judged, but that we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And you say, oh, it's a little bit of a, you're splitting hairs there, pastor. No, the judgment seat, the word here, bema, it's the tribunal bench where the governor sat in the Roman court setting. This is where Pilate sat down when he was hearing Christ's case and where he sat to give his verdict. James warns against some kind of selfish ambition, but we as Christians find a holy ambition in knowing that when Christ sits at that judicial seat, that tribunal bench, that he will declare our reward for what we have done in the flesh. Our sins are covered in the blood of Christ, and we will be given a reward for how we obey him. All comes right back to verse 18. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Chrysostom summed it up this way. We mind not the things seen, whether affliction or refreshment come, so as to be seduced by the latter or deterred by the former. This is not a difference between spiritual things and human things. St. Paul's not saying, hey, don't you focus on work and taking care of your family and you know, enjoying playing frisbee on a sunny day? Uh, certainly not. The difference here is between the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit. If, if those things that you enjoy in the world begin to push Christ out of your heart and begin to take the throne of your life, yes, they become troublesome. It's, it's like in the parable of the sower when he says there were thorns that choked out the seed of the gospel before it could grow up and bear fruit. What were they? They were the worries and the pleasures of this world. Some people are addicted to one and some are addicted to the other. I will be obsessed with worries and they will be my God. Or I will be obsessed with pleasures and they will be my God. What is your poison? Doesn't matter. They're both poison. What he's saying here is the seen versus the unseen. It isn't even physical versus spiritual. That's that Greek stuff. Rather, in this, the present and in eternity, there's both physical and spiritual. The distinction is between the outward and the inward. Focusing on the jar of clay, as he said last week, or focusing on the treasure that's inside. The world would only see the outside because they, they can't focus on what is unseen. They, they see him wasting away. They don't see him being renewed day by day. We, as the church, have to shift our focus. We have to zoom out. We have to say, oh, in this moment, it looks like this is what's going on. But when I see it from a, a perspective of a God who is in control of everything, a sovereign God, I recognize that He is doing something greater. Therefore, we will not lose heart. 
Outwardly, we're wasting away, but inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we, even though it's so easy to lose heart, to say like Paul did, that we're afflicted to the point of despairing of life, that, Lord, when we would put these things on the scale and compare them not only to the glory of God that awaits us, but to the suffering of Christ for us, they're nothing. They're light and momentary troubles. Lord, thank you for this heavenly perspective. And when we are tempted to focus on ourselves, we pray that you would help to correct our horizon, that you would be the instrument on our instrument panel that shows us it feels like like you are being abandoned, like you are being dragged down. But remember, every day we are being renewed day by day. Lord, we thank you for these reminders through your Holy Spirit. Amen.